Brooks so so embarrassed me about the length of my proposed title. <laughs> um, I don't know if any of you remember this from the, uh, the service the other night, but so embarrassed me about the length of my proposed title uh, that I decided to rescind it and, uh, and come up with one that's uh, a great deal more truncated that would have fit in your program had it been only of the, the smallest proportions. So um, how's this for a title? Um, accounting for tastes. Accounting for tastes. You've all met the old adage, uh, there's no accounting for a taste. Uh, and I would uh, feign to make some small effort at accounting for them uh, just now. And, and I want to uh, begin by doing so uh, by um, means of an illustration, which from the looks of things will be altogether familiar to uh, practically everyone here. Uh, and that is the family dinner table when um, mom has brought out a dish which is um, inexplicably unwanted by one of the members of the family. Uh, little, little Timmy doesn't want to eat it. Perhaps it's a plate of asparagus that's been buttered with little uh, shavings of Parmesan over the top. And, and the child uh, sees this and doesn't want to eat it. And the child says, if he's a very rude little boy, um, it's yucky. Ugh, I don't want to eat this, right? Now, now um, if, uh, and, and I'm sure that you've encountered just those sorts of scenes, haven't you? You've seen something like that happen, even if you've trained your child not to express their displeasure in such gross ways. Um, nevertheless, they express the displeasure in other ways by simply not eating the food. Um, so your response to that, I think, is motivated by three quite uh, separate things only one of which will be applicable to us tonight, but I want to talk about all three because uh, they may be useful in other ways. Um, I think the first, um, uh, the first response, the first thing that, that motivates you is a sense of um, uh, parental propriety, that notion of uh, honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord has given thee. Uh, children, obey your parents. The first commandment with a promise, eat your asparagus. I told you to eat it. Now mustn't you eat it, right? Isn't that enough? But of course it isn't enough. If we had n no reason but that to foist asparagus upon our children, um, we would be driving our children to frustration, which uh, St. Paul enjoins us not to do. And in fact, criminalizes, I think, in, in that famous passage um, so I think um, uh, that first motive uh, that, that motivates us to force our children to eat, which they do not want to eat, um, isn't sufficient on its own. So what's the second one? Well, it's probably the one you heard most growing up. Eat your vegetables, they're good, good for you, right? It's an appeal to health, <laughs> as if we were the... the um, the, the, the CDC or, uh, you know, um, some, sort of, um, some sort of bureaucrat. Yeah, I know I should avoid that one, right? Um, some, sort of, uh, some sort of 1950s bureaucracy, right? Like, um, like what we met in the, uh, you know, the, the nurse's office in the public school, right? Health, the most important thing, of course, of all. As if that were really the motive to drive us to make our children eat asparagus with butter and Parmesan. And of course, it isn't the motive at all because we can all think of things even more healthy to eat than that. I imagine that um, uh, a, a pureed kale smoothie might be more healthy, but I would not voice that upon my children or anyone uh, and, at all, right? Um, so uh, that, that's, not a very, um, that's not a very good answer. I mean, I'm sure that asparagus is healthy enough if it's well prepared. I'm not denying it, that. What I'm denying is that that's actually the main motivation uh, uh, behind our interest in causing children to eat things which they don't naturally want to eat. Um, it isn't, um, because of course we could find uh, gummy vitamins that would do that job for us, and then we could let them go on eating the trash that they would naturally gravitate to, <laughs> and um, we would achieve roughly the same health uh, output. Um, so I think that's not, um, that's not, that's not what motivates it. And, um, and of course, I, I hasten to point out that this is not a talk about parenting, thank God. We've had all of that any of us ever want to hear. Um, that's not what I'm here to talk about tonight. I'm here to talk about beauty. And I believe it to be that which motivates us uh, to cause our children to eat things which they naturally don't want to eat. We believe that asparagus 
uh, when it's buttered and covered with little slivers of Parmesan cheese is really beautiful. And I think many of you are nodding and so you agree with me that it's beautiful. What I want to point out though is that you may agree with me when I say that it's beautiful in a, in a sort of funny way. In other words, I think that some of you may imagine that I'm using the word beautiful here in a metaphorical way. In the same way that the children these days use the word epic to describe anything that's really big, right? So it's like an epic water gun, uh, which I, I hasten to point out um, uh, falls short of Aristotle's uh, distinctions. It's not, it's not epic. It can't be epic. It just can't be. Um, it doesn't have that sense of distance yet, you know? It's uh, maybe distance in another sense. Um, um, uh, when I use the word beautiful to describe asparagus, uh, I am speaking literally. I think it is beautiful, but that requires a great deal of unpacking because I think many people who've been trained in classical um, ways may have come under the influence unwittingly of, uh, of the ancients and their attitudes about where one might use the word beautiful. Um, use it to describe art, use it to describe poetry, use it to describe music, uh, architecture perhaps, right? And, um, and then, no sooner done, then it's um, beautiful things are things that have a set of particular features, right? And, and if we are to judge from the legacy left to us from the ancient Greeks, I suppose those features would be simplicity and symmetry and mathematical perfection and those sorts of things, which are, by the way, doubtless beautiful. But then what of the gnarly old oak tree, right? You see, the, the Romantics, of course, adopt certain other um, characteristics, which they prize alongside the ones which interested the antiques. So things like wildness or sublimity, um, uh, you know, the, the Matterhorn is beautiful, or even um, poetry describing it. Um, uh, you're familiar with the old hymn, Fair um, are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, right? Um, fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, right? Well, of course, that translation um, is taking a liberty with the original text, uh, but it's taking a very romantic translation liberty, right? It's a liberty that ro only romantic would take with that text. Of course, we've come to imagine that the word beauty is to be used in a fairly narrow range or to be used metaphorically, right? That, that um, we feel as though we use the word beauty to describe something like handicraft, that we are um, both using the word beauty and not using it. And I think that we're wrong in that, um, and I, I do so on good grounds, the grounds which I'm sure all you Christian people would imagine I would have turned to sooner, which is scripture. And the ancient Hebrews, um, do talk about beauty. They do have a word which seems to stand for something like beauty, but anyone reading the Old Testament, um, having read his Aristotle and having read his Plato, would imagine that there wasn't any such thing in the Old Testament as beauty at all, that um, the Old Testament is describing things which do not connect with the understanding of beauty which we meet in the ancient world. It's, uh, it, and as it turns out, what's happening here is the ancient world is describing a subset of beauty and the scriptures are describing the whole thing. Now, the things that the, the ancients found to be beautiful are indeed beautiful, quite right. But they're a small portion, a small fragment of that larger thing which the Old Testament talks about when it talks about beauty. Because, of course, the Old Testament talks about cattle as beautiful and also the elevation of a city as beautiful, and a singing voice, which we're okay with, um, uh, but also things like holiness is beautiful, which it says without a whiff of metaphor. And then we begin to think to ourselves that things like strawberries are beautiful, but also sonatas, but also sonnets, but also um, all sorts of things, right? But also geometry. And how is it that all these disparate things are beautiful? And I think the um, scriptural definition um, is that beauty is revelation. It's the way by which God makes himself known. Uh, God makes himself known through things. He can't make himself known in any other way because we're things. And we have to encounter things to know about him, right? He makes himself known through things, through scripture, which is beautiful, and through his general revelation, his other book, which is also beautiful, which includes the works of man, which are beautiful, but sometimes spoiled 
Right? Scripture gives us um, uh, this, this interesting idea in, in the 34th Psalm, and you'll know it well, I'm sure. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, um, God is a spirit, and he doesn't have a body like men. And uh, even if he did, I'm not sure I'd want to taste it, right? Uh, anyone uh, anyone uh, thinking that Scripture is speaking directly about eating God in that way, I think is confused, uh, whatever my Catholic brothers might teach me about that, right? Um, taste and see that the Lord is good uh, is merely pointing out that if we are to know about God, we are to know it in the most obvious of ways. We are to taste and see, and as we do, we understand that the Lord is good. Um, I was once lecturing about a still life uh, of a turkey pie. It's a painting of a turkey pie. And um, I was pointing out to the crowd that I think that this thing, uh, this painting actually does a great deal more good than a number of religious paintings. And they were a little surprised. And I said, well, you see, I don't want to worship a God who didn't make turkey pie. Um, I don't, the God who, who didn't involve himself in the making of wine or bread, um, that's not my God. I'm not for him. I'm not on his side. And so uh, I will taste and see that the Lord is good. So beauty is, of course, revelation. And I say, of course, because I think it's obvious um, that uh, that's the case. And I think asparagus reveals a great deal about God's glory. Now, modern people would be delighted to use the word beautiful to describe the asparagus, but not for the reasons that you think of. Um, modern people have come to an understanding about beauty, which I think is very convenient, but unfortunately false. And that it is, in the old adage, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now that's a cliche, but what I mean by that is, is simply that beauty is um, a fancy term for the word preference, right? That beauty is really, what, what, what I say, when I say that something is beautiful, what I am merely saying is that I prefer that thing. Um, and of course, if that's what we meant by beauty, it would be very convenient, especially to the parent who's trying to get his children to eat asparagus, right? Because as it turns out, the child doesn't prefer the asparagus. And how should he? And, and why blame him because he doesn't? It's his preference, after all. I don't expect you to scratch your leg when my leg itches, right? Um, and if he prefers one thing over the other, I might be able to make a case on some other grounds, but I certainly can't make a great case on the grounds of beauty because, as I've already pointed out, beauty is preference. And he has his preferences, and I have mine, and we can shake hands on that, and I might be able to appeal to bald, tyrannical parental authority to make him eat the asparagus but I couldn't appeal to beauty. So it's convenient indeed because it avoids, um, this position is convenient indeed because it avoids a, a number of conflicts. And we know there are a number of conflicts about beauty. And parents know there are a lot of conflicts about beauty among their children, right? Things that you wish your children would like that they don't like. And you're constantly trying to make them like those things. And then, uh, the, and then comes the, I'll say postmodern if that's a real word, but. Um, then, comes the, then comes the modern person um, who says, oh, silly parent, There's no this is an illusion of conflict. This person has a preference, this person has a preference. Why can't we agree that we all have different preferences and, and, and go about our business? So the conflict is avoided. But there's another reason why this view would be convenient, a more sinister one. And it's because if beauty were in the eye of the beholder, and I wouldn't have to change my tastes either. The parent wouldn't have to change his tastes. And you laugh, children, but of course the truth is, the truth is <laughs> that you've all seen this. Have you not seen your parents turn up their nose at food that they, that, that they would turn right around and force you to eat and say you ought to eat it, right? right? They, they force broccoli before you and then take them to the seafood place and someone brings out uh, raw oysters on ice and they look at it um, as anyone would, like phlegm on a rock, um, <laughs> and they don't eat it, right? They don't eat it. Because if beauty were in the eye of the beholder, hey, there's no accounting for tastes. I can eat whatever I want to eat. How dare you tell me? And I tell you what, we'll shake hands on it. 
You can like what you like, and I'll like what I like, and we'll all get along famously. And indeed, we would all get along famously, for the road to perdition is a very smooth one. It's a smooth one, isn't it? So, of course, the problem with this view, I would adopt it myself, except it happens to be absolutely and demonstrably wrong. Um, it's wrong in a lot, of, a lot of obvious ways. I think I, I found many ways to prove it wrong, but I think the fastest way to prove it wrong is just to ask yourself what conversations about beautiful things look like every time you hear them. It's one person trying to persuade another person that this thing that they like is beautiful. You go to a great restaurant you've never been to before and you have a great meal, and what do you do the next morning at work? Hey, we went to this great restaurant last night and you should go try it. And I got this and you should try that too because it's especially good. What a strange thing to say about preference. If it were merely preference, why would we ever expect someone else to share our preferences any more than I expect you to scratch your leg when my leg itches? It makes no sense at all. If beauty were merely a matter of my own feelings about something, then it would be um, incommensurate, right? It would be not the kind of thing that we could share. And so I would like the things I like for reasons altogether unknown, altogether hidden. And you would like the things you like for reasons altogether unknown. And there would never be any reason for us to talk about that because there would be nothing to talk about. But talk we do. We all talk about this stuff all the time. We introduce each other to music that we like and poems that we like and books that we like and food that we like and we do it and it's not unique to you Christians right it's not unique to you the worldling does the exact same thing in his own free time all the time admitting all the while that this very much is commensurate that there's something in this thing that's likable I used to do this exercise again and again with students I would say somebody tell me something beautiful that you've encountered lately and they would describe it in uh, detail and I would help them through that and I would say now if beauty were in the eye of the beholder you would have been describing you that whole time. Not the Matterhorn, not the sunset, not the beach, but you. You would be talking about things in you, not in things in that object. But we know patently that that, that isn't what you meant. You didn't mean when you told me how lovely the sunset was at the beach, you didn't mean that you quizzically have a preference for the sunset on the beach and that you would never expect anyone to share that because after all, Beauty is an eye of the beholder. And uh, of course, there are many other more, um, I think, more technical proofs for why that uh, beauty is an eye of the beholder position won't work or that beauty is a synonym for preference won't work. But I think you've got the idea. Um, one of the reasons why people fall into it is, um, of course, to avoid conflict and to avoid change, as I've talked about. But there's another reason, and that's that talking about beautiful things is rather hard. Let's go back to the asparagus. The child says, it's yucky. And you say, no, it's not. It's tasty. Well, that's compelling. <laughs> Can we do better? Well, you see, it's, um, it's buttery. Yes, I, I see butter, but I've, I, eating a stick of butter is no good. Um, well, it's salty. Well, also for salt. Um, yes, but it's, it's green. Yes, that's apparent. Uh, not a taste, but a color. Um, where are we going with this? Is there a, a case to be made for my eating this asparagus? And the crippled parent with kind of hamstrung reason and limited vocabulary twiddles his finger and says, just eat it because you must, because it's before you and I am your father. Talking about beautiful things is really hard, right? It's, it's very challenging. We typically fail. And that's because beautiful things typically speak for themselves. I remember Ken Myers, and we were talking about a, a psalm, and he read it, and he said, now, if you want to know what it means, I'm going to tell you what it means now. And he turned around and read it again. <laughs> um, beautiful things are like that. Do you want to know what's beautiful about asparagus? Well, you better go get some, because that's, that's all there is to it, right? There's all there is to it. Uh, there's no great way to work through that um, that problem other than to experience the beautiful things. And yet, why would the child do that? What's his experience told him? What if he took a bite? Would he like it? Probably not. Because most beautiful things are very hard at first instance, right? Um, you're, um, you might be interested to know that in Italy, the children are made to drink wine like our children are made to eat vegetables, right? They're made to drink wine and they say, oh, it's yucky. 
I don't want to taste. It's bitter. It's it's horrible, right? Which of course any um, neophyte to wine would feel uh, uh, immediately. Why would anyone drink this, right? But of course, over time, you learn what you're looking for, what you're tasting for, what you're uh, smelling for, right? It's a, it's a skill, it's very hard. And almost all beautiful things are like that. They require um, a great deal of attention. And, and um, why would we invest that kind of uh, energy in something we are yet to be convinced will pay off? And so that, that's one of the reasons why uh, people's tastes end up being hamstrung is because um, there's, uh, the deck's stacked against them from the beginning, from, against all of us, right? If I'm, going to, if I'm going to spend my free time on something that you think is beautiful, I'm going to have to trust you a lot because I don't have very much free time. And I'm also going to have to spend a lot of time on that thing and potentially face a great deal of initial failure. And I'm going to have to trust that um, the investment will be worth the time I spent on it. So that's one of the reasons why people tend to think that beauty must be in the eye of the beholder, that beauty is just a synonym for taste, because uh, a great deal of the disagreement that comes about comes from our um, failed efforts to convince people by force of reason to like the same things we like. Um, there's, uh, there's, of course, also a lot of confusion um, by means of false dichotomy. I think this is another one of the ways by which people uh, end up being very limited uh, in their tastes uh, is by false dichotomy. Um, what I, I suppose what I need to explain what I mean by that. Um, you've heard people ask the question, um, which is better, vanilla or chocolate, right? And I, ice cream, right? Which is like, um, kind of like the question, which of these two things is true? Strawberries are a fruit or two plus two is four, right? It's a false dichotomy, right? Um, there, there is no, there's no answer to that question about vanilla and chocolate any more than there's an answer, which is better, wine or bread, right? Um, uh, a, a loaf of wine cannot be bested by a, a loaf of bread, cannot be bested by a glass of wine. So th there's, um, we, we create these false dichotomies for a number of reasons. Um, one of them, I think, is just sort of self-identity, right? I'm a Harley guy, right? I don't, I don't like those, uh, you know, Japanese-made motorcycles, right? Um, uh, or um, I have a hobby, it's woodworking, right? But I have no interest in learning how to fill in the blank. I have no interest in learning how to go fishing, right? Um, because, you know, fishing, that's for those guys that fish, and I'm not one of those, right? I'm this, you know where you see this most, um, most uh, quizzically in the South is in sports, right? I love football. I love football so much. Oh, who's your favorite team? Oh, let me tell you all about my favorite team. And they go on and on about their favorite team. And as it turns out, they only like watching football games that involve their favorite team, and preferably when that favorite team wins, right? <laughs> and they don't actually like football, as it turns out. What they like is the kind of um, gang camaraderie that comes from touting certain colors and badges, right? Which hasn't anything to do with football, as far as I can see. Um, football is a lovely game and very interesting on its own right, but those who are interested in it are interested in it. As it turns out, they're not interested in it, they're interested in being part of a group or an association, a kind of small coterie or gang, right? And that's what often causes people to have very limited tastes, right? I don't like that kind of food. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy, right? Uh, we hear this all the time. And I feel sorry for those people because what they've done is they've chosen to not taste and see, right? They've decided to limit their experiences with God's glory in a kind of uh, unhelpful way. Um, so this, this false dichotomy problem is, is pretty large, um, but it also exposes one other problem, which I don't think is such a big of a problem, but something we have to attend to, and that's that we tend to like things better the more time we spend with them, right? Um, one of the reasons why people choose one hobby, say, over another, and focus on it exclusively is because you can often gain access to richer beauties if you invest more and more of yourself in a particular branch of that, right? Um, that if everyone's a jack of all trades and a master of none, they may actually miss out on certain beauties by doing that, by uh, being a gadfly, by scattering themselves out to uh, more things than they can actually gather back in. And I think that's a, a danger. Um, uh, you know, one, um, 
one way you could see this perhaps most acutely is in your love for your spouse, right? Um, all of us uh, men think our wives are the most beautiful women who've ever walked the earth. But in, in fact, perhaps painful fact, the truth of the matter is that it's just that she's the one I've studied most, right? That I'm, I'm a scholar in that sort of beauty. That I've attended to it long enough to see what's there, to understand it, to understand as much of it as I can understand. Still not enough, but in this life, perhaps as much as I can. And so, of course, I would say it's the most beautiful thing. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. It's because she's the most, she's the woman I know most, right? Um, and, and thank God we're precluded from knowing others in that sort of way. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a good, um, uh, it's a good thing that we focus on some things at the expense of others, yet all the while admitting that that hobby which we sadly reject because we haven't the time for it, we reject knowingly at our loss that if we had more time, we would be able to see more of God's glory. Uh, that, that food that we don't take from the restaurant's menu um, we, uh, we pass over sadly, not because we turn up our nose at it, but because we know that there's glory there to be had. There's things about God which we could know, which we can't know uh, now that we've chosen this other thing. But there's only one dinner time in a day, so you can't, uh, you can't have more than one meal. Time is a factor. Um, now, You've heard me say um, to talk about sort of the diversity of beauty, um, and I think everyone would hope that I would stop there. In fact, of course, I have to say the other side of the coin, which is that there are a number of things that aren't very beautiful at all, um, and we have to deal with those. Um, uh, Brooks and I were just talking about this line from this hymn that's no longer sung, where about. Um, uh, um, what though the spicy breezes waft soft o'er Ceylon's isle, where every prospect pleases, and only man is vile. And only man is vile. The things that we make, of course, often are not beautiful, and I want to talk about those. One, one clear way you can know that you're dealing with something that's not beautiful is it's the sort of something that makes you less attentive to other kinds of beauties, right? That, that, that forbids access to other kinds of beauties. Now, I, I, um, I was talking about this once at Jekka some time ago. Um, so some of you heard the illustration uh, about heroin. I still think it's a really good one uh, because, of course, there are pleasures to be had in enjoying heroin. Um, but the problem with those pleasures is that they preclude all other pleasures, right? Um, so it's a good illustration, but I want to, I want to hit uh, closer to home here because I think you'd want me to uh, as well. Let's stick to the culinary first because it's more benign. Um, what would happen if your diet were exclusively, were really exclusively of fast food and gas station food um, other than putting on 100 pounds in a year? Um, and uh, if we were to push away all the health issues, what would that do to your ability to taste and see that God is good? What would it feel like to sit down to something really sophisticated or nuanced, like sushi, right? Or, or um, oysters, Rockefeller, or uh, creme brulee. You would taste it and feel it were bland. Ugh, there's nothing. There's nothing here because, of course, you, your your tastes had been formed by high uh, levels of fat and sugar and salt so much that you wouldn't really be able to taste good food anymore, right? You'd be broken in that sense. Not only would you have foregone the opportunity to enjoy great food, you would be in a position where you couldn't enjoy great food, right? Now, what does that say about the food that puts you in that maimed position, right? It's ugly. It's ugly stuff, right? And it's, uh, you know, it, it's just not, not very nice. It's ugly stuff, right? And there are other uglinesses out there. Um, of course, my special line of work was ostensibly music, although I ended up lecturing more about philosophy than anything else. Um, um, I know from painful fact that people who grow up um, in mass commercial music as their, their only musical experience, by which I mean the kind of music um, that involves a kind of um, short, 
rhythmic ostinato of ostensible complication that it repeats over and over again and then has a melodic line that is as close to monotone as possible um, that's full nevertheless of the most um, rich sensations imaginable thrown together in no particular order, right? Music that is as close to mere sensation as opposed to meaning as it possibly could be. Anyone trained on that music who's experienced nothing but that music in their life really can't enjoy music in the way that I enjoy it. Now, I know that that's no real, um, uh, no real um, spur for you to go uh, uh, try the music that I enjoy. Um, but, but let me just say that, that when, for, me, for music for me is a lot closer to um, reading a book in some ways. Um, I wish there were another word for it. I feel like I would gladly give mass commercial music the word music if I had another word for what I did. Um, which is, um, I sit down and I, um, I, even with the score or not with the score, and I, I listen to a Schubert string quartet, and Schubert gives me ideas, musical ideas, um, which are purely musical, no words, and I retain those in my memory, and I think about them as I hear other ideas, and I see how they are a continuation of those ideas, or a difference, or a permutation of it. It's almost like watching architecture move. Um, and then over time, I see that the ideas he's setting up are actually, in fact, setting up a narrative, a kind of problem, as it were, a problem that is um, painfully in need of resolution of some sort. And this is all happening over the course of 40 minutes or more, right? And I'm, I'm expected to remember things and look for things and anticipate things. It's terribly hard, um, but you do it. And as you do it, you get better at doing it. And then before you know it, you, you know, you have that great denouement or crisis and resolution that Schubert offers, and you feel yourself um, like you've been through a huge story, right? Now, um, someone who's been bred on that mass commercial music I've talked about, they, they have no access to that beauty. They've been maimed um, by that mass commercial music to such an extent that they can't enjoy that music. They think they can. They'll listen to it. It's good stuff, right? I love, it. I love this classical music, right? I'd love to study while I listen to it, right, in the background. I always, I always wanted to say when people say that sort of thing, yes, and would you like to put on a, um, it's like saying, I love Charles Dickens novels. I love them so much that I would like to have an audiobook of a Charles Dickens novel playing while I'm doing my trigonometry, right? No, you don't like serious music. That's why you're putting it on as if it were a smell in the room. Right? Um, uh, it, it's, not, it's not the same. It's okay. It's okay that you don't like that. You can't like it because ugly things have made you incompetent to like it. Um, and that's, that's not your fault at all in any way whatsoever. Not morally culpable. Um, um, but it's just the fact. And so we avoid ugly things because they make us incompetent to enjoy more of God's glory. And there are many things like that. I've just picked a few because I think they're pretty clear illustrations. Um, but there's more to that, the story than that, because there's time management. Uh, I have this conversation from time to time um, with, with uh, younger people who tell me that, you know, Dr. Drake, you just don't know, uh, video games have come a long way since the 90s, right? I mean, when you were a kid, it was the little gray box with a little 8-bit, right? And of course, no one would spend their free time with such a thing. But now, now video games are much more sophisticated and developed. And I say, oh, I doubt not. I mean, obviously technology moves on apace. I'm sure they are. As far as I've seen, they seem to be quite a bit more developed. But when I have an hour of free time, which of course, as a 41-year-old man with four small children, um, I don't have ever. Um, <laughs> but if I had an hour of free time, I would not think to myself, let's see, what will I do? play 1990s video games or 2020s video games. I would think to myself, 1990s video games, 2020 video games, War and Peace, Milton, Keats, uh, Beethoven, Brahms, um, go take a walk in my own woods, right? See if I can learn the names of the trees in my own backyard, right? Okay, so let's back to the video game thing. Oh, you know, that is obviously better than that. I totally agree with you, but then there's all this other stuff. Sorry, you know. Um, you see, the time management thing comes in there, right? We all have to choose the sorts of things that give us the most amount of glory in the amount of time that we have to enjoy them in. And, and that's, that's a hard thing because the, 
I've been talking about a kind of music here, um, which many people won't have access to, and that's okay. They'll have access to other beauties, that's fine, right? There are beauties going on right now at the bottom of the ocean that I haven't access to, and I'm okay with that. There are some scientists who get to go enjoy that and bless them, and I'm so happy that they do. Maybe they'll bring pictures back. Um, <laughs> but that's all I can hope for, right? Um, we can't spend our time with everything, right? We have to choose wisely. But I tell you what I'm not gonna choose. I'm not gonna choose something that's gonna cripple me, right? I'm just not gonna do it um, because there's just, uh, life is too short. There's too much glory out there to have. I'm not gonna choose it. I'm gonna choose the things that give me the most possible access to God's glory um, and, that in, and make me more and more able to have access to more and more of God's glory, right? That's, that's what I'm gonna try to do. Now, um, this presents, um, and I'll uh, close with this final point, um, this presents one um, small obstacle, which some of you may be thinking. If you're hardworking uh, people, um, you know that you get to the end of the day and you feel tired. And you think to yourself, you know, I really, once I've had a hard day's work, I just want to sit down and um, turn off, veg out, right? I just want to relax, right? That's what I want to do. And I certainly understand that feeling. I feel that way too. Um, but I think that our res if our response to that is, I therefore want to do something which is um, altogether without intellectual stimulus, that's merely sensate. I want to sit in a warm bath and um, aromatherapy candle or whatever. Um, nothing wrong with that, by the way. I, I, um, I should hope that everybody understands that when I speak against mere sensation, um, I don't begrudge anything which we share with the beasts. And my dog enjoys a good itch and so do I, right? So um, <laughs> that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that's right, yeah, that's right. Unless it's your life, we can't enjoy it. Um, the, uh, the, the, the temptation is to assume that when we're very, very tired, we want to just um, do something that is uh, minimally um, uh, energetic, right? That involves the least amount of energy. I think this, involved, this is a fundamental misunderstanding of fatigue. We tend to think of fatigue as a burden which has to be lifted off of us, right? I've been working very hard all day and I'm very burdened. And so at the end of the day, I wanna take that burden off of me and rest. Rest meaning do nothing, right? Veg out. But what if fatigue were not a, a, a burden, but a poison? Well, then you would need a cure. You would need to put something in you to restore equilibrium, right? And what is that thing you need to put in you? God's glory. The thing you need to encounter is God's glory. And that unfortunately means probably labor because we're not gonna encounter God's glory particularly easily. Uh, it's gonna require some effort on our part. Maybe we get better at it over the years, but it's still gonna be some effort. So we, and we undergo that effort and our leisure is um, relieving. It's striking to me that people typically are tireder on Monday than they are on Fridays. Um, that many people find the weekend to be very fa fatiguing. Now, I don't, um, I don't have all the answers for that because I think that modern people spend most of their time doing the sorts of jobs which no one in their right mind would do except for pay. Um, so uh, that's a problem in our society, perhaps not even a moral problem, just a, a quizzical conjunction of some economic forces which have put us in a ruinous state. Um, but um, since I'm talking about leisure and not economics, I would say that it's striking that modern people who have more leisure than anyone else in history, right, are nevertheless um, more tired and even more tired after their leisure. And I think it's because their leisure doesn't involve very much glory. Um, that, that what they've done is they've imagined that by pushing off the weight of their labor and moving into something like a, a Buddhist nirvana, right, that they can avoid I mean, they can avoid fatigue, but in fact, fatigue has to be cured, and it can only be cured by glory. And so we encounter the most glorious things as a way of avoiding fatigue. And I would urge you um, to do that as much as you can. Of course, I think your own convictions will tell you where that is. Mine certainly do. I know when I've wasted an hour of leisure, I feel it acutely as, uh, as a sin, which I need to repent of. And I do repent of it, and I move on. Uh, but the key is to note that it is a sin. I, I'm, uh, I'm struck by how... Um, unready we are to admit uh, the sin of just enjoying really ugly things, like the ugliest things. Um, so let's repent of that together and, and move on. Thanks very much. That's all I have to I, uh, time for questions? Yes. Okay, all right. So, yeah. Yes.
Proteus flower, yeah. okay, and then cone-shaped, cone-shaped flowers. That sounds great. Yeah. I especially welcome questions of opposition. Questions where you're they're thinking, you're, well, okay. So what I mean by that is you're thinking, yeah, right, right, right. But I would never give up that, right? Or I'm sure that's fine. He's probably not talking about that, right? Um, because I tend to think that. For me, when I encounter this thesis, even as I give the talk, I'm thinking, yeah, I should probably not waste time on that. It's a waste of time, you know? I'm not offended yet, so could you give a list of bad things? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, I won't, because I, I really I think. I agree with you on video yeah, games, so yeah, you can, okay. keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't think we need it, because we. We know. I mean, I think everybody knows where they're wasting time and where they're not encountering glory. Um, we tend to think about wasting time as, oh, I'm not being productive, right? I'm not making a living or I'm not doing my job or whatever. But um, your job is to glorify God. So um, uh, let's, let's go ahead and, and do that by encountering him as much as we can, enjoying it as much as we can. Yeah. So I wholeheartedly agree with your thesis. So I don't, I, I, in yeah. my nature, I'd, I'd love to have some and I'm not Scottish, and I still have that. But I would ask, um, so insofar as, the, and, I, and I, I understood the notion of the, the false dichotomy, um, and, and, and also the, the cliche, of course, of there's no kind of taste. But what about preferences? So I'm from Southern California um, yeah. in uh, 79, the Iranians had a big revolution. Ton of Iranians moved to where I'm from, and they were absolutely every Iranian guy I met was in seventh heaven because there's a lot of blondes. Right, right. Oh, there's all these blondes. Right, right. And and I'm so happy about that. That yeah. was their preference. And then my preference was, was a Mediterranean looking. Right, yeah. And they were like, they'd be astonished yeah. that I, you know, given the opportunity, sure. I would prefer somebody who's not So I'm not picking if you're sure. blonde. Right. Speaking as a former. Right. Yeah. Let me let me lift the the discussion to the meta question. So we'll move it out of discussions about um, tastes, um, uh, human tastes. So again, you know, romantic interests and so forth, uh, and pull it up a level because there's a lot. There's a lot I could say about that, um, and talked about that in whole lectures. I want to maybe come back to that if there's time. Um, preference, of course, uh, often comes about because people are given particular skills, right? Um, so um, let's go back to the bottom of the ocean, and there are people there who are especially skilled at understanding the beauty of what's happening on the bottom of the ocean. And naturally, they would prefer to spend their free time there because they're really good at it both good by uh, nature and good by training, right? Um, I, uh, I'm uh, familiar with and even fond of a composer by the name of Milton Babbitt who wrote some just intensely hard music. Um, and he uh, was so criticized by the difficulty of his music, hard not just to play, play, forget it, it's mostly performed by computers, but to listen to, right? It's really, really hard to, to just follow. Um, and he wrote this famous essay called Who Cares If You Listen? Right? in which he argued, hey, um, I have a PhD in music theory, and so do all my graduate students, and, my, um, you know, uh, and, and uh, can't we make music for us that's really interesting? We have these skills and this training, and can't we do that? Is that okay? I mean, is anybody going to complain if we just do that? 
And I think the answer is no, by no means. It's wonderful. Good for you. That's great. You have special skills you can attend. And all the while, of course, recognizing that people with different skills might have different preferences and you ought to learn from them. They're your teachers. They're your preachers of general revelation, right? Come to them to learn about the things that you're incompetent about but wish you weren't, right? Uh, love those things which you know very little about uh, and learn to love them better from those who are especially trained and especially gifted at enjoying those things. They can walk with you and show you the entryway into that kind of beauty. And that's, uh, that's, that's where preferences come, should come from. Of course, preferences don't always come from that. Sometimes they come from plain old sin. Like, I don't like that sort of thing. Uh, I'm me. I get to be me. I define my tastes uh, largely by uh, what I believe to be my own will, what in fact are uh, society, societally conditioned preferences due largely to mass marketing. Um, uh, you know, that's uh, preferences, in fact, 99% of the time in the modern world come from just advertising, right? Um, what they should come from is skill and giftedness, right? Um, and that, so that's to deal with that. Now, we can come back to the uh, lovey-dovey stuff, uh, you know, later. But, um, but I think that's how I'd answer that. And if we want to return to that, we can. But I, I, that's my big answer there, yeah. Um, I also really appreciate uh, what you said, Dr. Um I, I think, too, it's even to attempt to deny what you're saying is, like, you know, like Romans 1, like, it's just impossible. Yeah, it's, it's in my notes. I didn't bring Romans 1 up, but, yeah. You're just suppressing truth. Uh, I do wonder, though, however, how do you, like, what counsel would you give Christians to avoid taking this in some mystical direction where all aesthetic experience then becomes like this um, pantheistic encounter with the one? Yeah. What, you know, no, I other? totally know what you mean. I am to- <laughs> I'm, uh, it's, 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 um, it's the other side of the coin, right? So um, Christianity narrowly misses pantheism because the pantheist says that everything is God and we say no everything's about God right um, it, it all points past itself so the the counsel I would give them is to rejoice in the Lord as you do these things to thank him to have his because um, it, it doesn't say taste and see that this is good food you know taste and see that the Lord is good the purpose of it is of course to delight in the Lord and it um, it is hard I think it's a real temptation. It's been a temptation for me, for sure. Um, and sometimes a very a grievous temptation to um, prize beautiful things as if they were an end in themselves. But of course they're not. They point past themselves. And so we just have to always check that. Because that's what the, in fact, you bring up Romans 1, but that's actually what we witness there. It's a strange, strange and wonderful passage because Paul talks about how what can be known about God is made manifest to them through the things that have been made. Even his eternal power and divine nature used to be the Godhead, the way the old King James translated that, so that they were that excuse. But then he goes to talk about what they do. What do they do? They make for themselves likenesses of of, uh, birds and animals and reptiles and forfeit creatures and things like that, to which I would say, "But, but, but aren't they just looking at the things which have been made, the things that point to God? Aren't they just doing the very thing they should be doing? Oh, but they're not because they're bowing down to them and not worshiping the the creator who is to be forever praised, right? Um, That's the very thing I think he's getting at there is that that rather than seeing the natural world point past itself, they point to the natural world. They, they, you know, so I think think you're right to see that danger. I don't have a great answer except prayer and fasting the Holy Spirit and times of fasting, and times of feasting, and times of uh, plenty, and times of less, right? Um, so that we can kind of care for our, our, our souls in those ways. So like if you're caught up in, I don't know, like the ode to joy or something. Right. Okay. It's okay to be caught up in it so long as there's some like doxological conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah that's right. What is it, uh, what is it the Schiller's poem says at the end, right? Um, surely uh, there is a God in the heavens, uh, a, a loving surely there is a Liebe Vater, right? Yeah, right. You know, um, yeah. It reminds me of the chorus at the end of Paralandra that blessed be he. Right, blessed be he, blessed be he. That's it. Blessed be he. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's not so hard for Christians to find themselves on that side of the problem. I think it's hard. I think um, if once you ever slip, 
in the other direction, then it's hard to dig out, right? I mean, it's hard. Uh, 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 it typically leads away from beauty, though, and towards sensualism. Uh, it's my experience is that people that fall into that trap end up not liking very many beautiful things at all, but just like the heathen, right? Go check out some um, heathen gods in ancient Rome and see what they look like. Actually, don't because they're pornographic. I mean, um, you know, uh, it typically ends up in sensualism and not looking at be beautiful things are quite keen to point past themselves. They're quite happy to do that. So you're typically safe um, uh, on that side of things. Yeah, it's great, great questions. Uh, really, really penetrating. Uh, I would say too that that's why built-in liturgies are helpful because they're orienting. I mean, obviously, the one obvious one is before um, our meal, right? We do say grace yeah. before yeah. ourselves. That makes me think of Chesterton somewhere. It says you say grace before a meal, good for you. Why say grace? He lifts out the point things. Like, right. Before yeah. I take up the pen, before I that's take right. This. Yeah. And sure. It's a liturgy of I'm going to say grace before mm -hmm. all of this to orient mm -hmm. myself. Get outside. Just get outside. For every prospect pleases, and only man is vile. Only man. That's all it is. Yeah. So when you're saying fatigue is uh, like a poison, and that we need to go to Christ when that happens, uh, and you said that week weekends are normally when that hmm. usually happens because it's a rest day when they make sure things. Um, is that a bad thing to do, or is it something that doesn't need to be constant? Or well, I we we really are commanded to take rest, you know, and take rest. The question is how we spend that rest, you know, what we do with it. And I think um, a lot of times we spend it in ways which we think are restful because we're not doing the sort of stuff we do for a living. Uh, or we're not doing things which require us to think very much or to work very hard. And so we imagine that that's rest, like sleep, right? Sleep feels like rest, doesn't it? But um, sleep is, is not like rest, it's sleep, you know? Um, rest, leisure, is often very active because we're trying really hard to look God square in the face. Now, and it's a kind of complicated question because um, it's a hard one for me. I think labor can be can face the same sort of problems, um, but God didn't curse leisure; He cursed labor. Right? There are thorns in the field and sweat of the brow when we try to do this sort of stuff. Right? But when we let that go, there's I think not to say there's no curse in leisure because leisure can be very hard, but it's not the same kind of curse, at least from my, what I understand of Genesis. So I guess my I think I think if I, I've understood your question right. I think what you're asking is. Um, isn't it a good thing for us to go ahead and rest ourselves? And I would say, uh, depends on what you mean by rest. Depends on what you mean by rest. Because if you mean by that vegging out, um, then I would say, no, you should go to sleep. If that's all you can do, go to sleep. You're too tired to... Uh, but I actually keep, I mean, I've always kept the hardest books by my bedside so that when I ever have free time, I can do that. I can read those things, right? Translate that really tricky line or go through one of Euclid's proofs or something like that and then encounter this really glorious thing that'll make me really tired and then go to sleep, right? <laughs> a lot of times, you know, a lot of times people are just plain tired. They just need to sleep more, right? Lights have a lot to answer for, right? We'd all be asleep by now in a bygone day, right? In times gone by, we certainly wouldn't be burning our candles sitting around listening to me gab. We'd all be asleep, right? Um, you know, it's true, right? So. I think even uh, uh, Laura, to, I'm still mulling your question about what's one thing we can do. I wonder if it is refuse to take pictures of stuff for a week. Refuse to take pictures of stuff. Refuse, refuse to, to take, take pictures, pictures for a week or something, or at least question ourselves. So I do it so yeah. often. I see something. Yeah, like I do a lot of take pictures too. And then I pull it up yeah. to take a picture, and it's I, I spoil it. I'm, I'm that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's true. It, that's true. Well, you know, I, I, I know exactly what you mean, and yet I've been so rewarded by really good photographers that I think, um, wow, I'm so grateful for their labors, but I'm a really bad photographer, so what, what good am I doing trying to, why don't I just look at this thing and enjoy it for what it is, rather than trying, part of it, if I may be so bold, is I think a lot of it, because I think we share similar personality traits in this regard, is 
we want to share these things, right? You wouldn't be taking a picture if you didn't want to text it to somebody, right? And so you share, we want to share these things. We're so eager to share these things that we can't just ourselves enjoy it, right? Like, this is for me. I don't care whether you like it or not, whether you've seen it or not, right? Um, I mean, this is one of the challenges of teaching beautiful things for a, a number, many, many years is at a certain point, I just want to say, I don't care whether you like this music. I do. You can all go wherever you please, but I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go listen. I'm gonna go listen to this this uh, motet by Josquin, right? Um, and I think that um, so I think that's part of it too is that, that we're not enjoying it. We're trying to get somebody else to enjoy it. In which case, really, it's just like another touch, right? It's just another, you know. And that's not that's what good is that doing, you know? I, yeah. Um, I mean, other, I mean, I think other things is I, I would just enjoin anybody who has the discipline to do it to get rid of background music. Um, if you want to listen to music, listen to music. My goodness, yes. Chesterton, by the way, has since he comes up all the time, um, has a great essay on this, talking about how the modern man is so strange because he wants to listen to music while he eats. Right? This is weird to Chesterton. He's like, why would you do those two things at once? Why can't you? If you want to go to a concert, my goodness, go to a concert. If you want to eat a meal, eat a meal. But why do we have to have bands come in our restaurants and play while we're eating meals, right? I can't decide what I'm supposed to be doing here, right? Um, and I think, um, this is of course not to offend anybody, I think almost everybody listens to music in the background, so I, I know that, I don't mean it to be offensive, I certainly don't mean a moral enjoinder uh, in, in there at all, I'm, I'm just saying that if, if it were me, uh, that would be something I would cut out like, right away, because, uh, and then listen to music when you have time, I, I mean, I almost never listen to music, I play um, I play piano. Probably almost all the music I listen to is what comes out of my own fingers. Um, um, and then rarely I'll sit down if I have time, but I don't have free time. But if I did, I would sit down and listen to whatever piece I wanted to listen to. But it's a big deal for me. It's a big deal. I mean, for a long time, the only music I would listen to was in concert when I would actually go to the symphony or whatever, or chamber music or whatever, uh, recitals and things like that. Um, this is not to put me as a model. My goodness, I hope that's just sounded, that it was all very pompous. I hope you understand what I mean. Um, do what you want to do. I mean, by all means, but just as a as a modest suggestion, um, I would get rid of background music. Yeah. How would you respond to a critic, and I'm not this critic, but um, who would say the love of beauty and appreciation of your beauty is elitist, bourgeois, highfalutin, yes. uh, luxury? Yep. Yep. So I would respond in, it's, I would first of all say, um, back to the earlier point, um, it certainly could be, and uh, in which case you should be very much on your guard. Pride cometh before a fall. And if you, uh, if you by any means think that you're clever because you have managed to take an interest in beauty, um, I'll take you to my farmer friends who enjoy a lot more beauty than you do. It's just not the same stuff, right? I had a friend um, who was basically illiterate, um, who was a carpenter by trade, um, and every time he talked to me, he was talking about some natural wonder that he'd saw, seen on his own property, right? And he had far more appetite for beauty than many musicologists I've worked with, right? Um, it just wasn't their beauty, because he hadn't the skill to enjoy it, uh, or the training, for that matter, you know? Not that you need tons of training to listen to music, but you need something, right? So I think on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, I would say this, and I think a lot of people say, you know, when I hear this, a lot of times I respond by saying, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I like sea shanties and Mabuti pygmy music and Beethoven and Brahms and Josquin and um, uh, the songs that, um, uh, that they sang on the chain gangs out in Alabama. And uh, I listen to folk music that they still sing in Appalachia in certain places, and hymns, and um, all of that, right? And you listen to music that was produced in the past three years. So who's the elitist? I mean, elite means like a small set, right? Um, and I just described a vast expanse, and you described a small set. So I'm going to say you're the elitist. Um, you know, that's how I would respond to that criticism. It's like I'm by no means an elitist when it comes to music. Um, the only thing I exclude is um, stuff that's essentially just made to, um, it's, it's made to sell records. It's just made to sell music, right? It's not really any music at all. It's just this sort of sound effects that's in the background, right? That's what I exclude. Um, do you have any advice for expanding appetites? Um, how do you get your kids to eat uh, asparagus? <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. Sure. Appe uh, like literally appetites, food. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, but just expanding someone's. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can't be argued into it. Right. You have to try it. Yeah. yeah you just, have to try. I mean, how do you coach yeah. people out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one them? one family I know tried this: let children ex um, describe their foods, give them opportunities to talk about what they're tasting. Um, give them give them as much language as they can with foods that they like start with that right what do you like about it right and we talk through it we talk through it and what it does is it trains them to pay attention to things that are happening in the culinary experience and that then prepares them to do that for other things because part of the, one of the great hurdles in beauty is attention god uh, really wants us to attend to him as he makes himself known and the devil prizes inattention that's why drugs and things like that are so useful uh, for Satan. So I think when you get kids to just attend to what they like, start talking about what, they, what is it you like about it, what happens is interesting, they discover that there, some of the things that they like, there really isn't anything to talk about. And these other things, they, you know, they like a little bit more. Well, I'm afraid I, I haven't a lot of great guidance because Vicki and I, our kids are, are good eaters and they eat just about a lot of stuff. But um, I don't know that we went about it right. Our, our um, uh, sort of a doctrinaire approach of you know, sort of you will eat what's before you and if you don't eat it it comes out at breakfast and lunch and dinner and breakfast and lunch and dinner we did it with every single child um, you know and I don't think it did anything except increase the number of spankings um, uh, it, it, I, don't, I don't think it achieved anything um, whatsoever um, so we failed in that but I think um, some people have had successes by just encouraging their kids to talk about food talk about what they like about the food um, other than just a full belly, you know. But in general, in terms of growing appetites, not, not, not talking about specifically but, food. Yeah, yeah, sure. But just growing appetites for beauty, it yeah. takes, it sounds like what you're saying, it takes time, it takes skill and a vocabulary. Um, it takes friends to help you into it. <laughs> right. Yeah, it takes people to point you in the right direction because, uh -huh. you know, I'm not sure I would have stumbled into it. I mean, most, uh, I mean, it's hard to understand how destructive um, mass commercial music is on the music front. I'm, well, I'm talking about music so much, but um, it's just a good illustration um, because it, if you're going to make a living in that sort of world, you've got to find um, you've got to find something that lots and lots and lots of people are going to like. And that's going to look a certain way. I, I, let me switch back to food because I think um, I'm tired of talking about music. Um, I was eating tacos the other night, and they were really good. My mom made these tacos. And um, my son said, oh, is there any taco sauce? And we found you know, a little sachet of um, Taco Bell's own taco sauce. And I thought how insipid this stuff is. It's like it's, it's almost nothing. And then I thought... Of course, it has to be almost nothing, because if you're going to succeed in a chain restaurant like that, it better taste, it better offend no one. No one will really like it, but everyone will not hate it. And that's how you would make money, right? It's, it's standard marketing, right? I mean, I just need to have the most people buy in at the moment to this thing. And same thing with music. You need to find things that are vague enough that they offend no one and please everyone. Uh, you, have you ever felt like when you listen to like a, a love song from the say the 90s that it's just speaking to you it's amazing it feels like it's exact well it's because <laughs> it's vague enough that it could be speaking to anyone right it could be about anything um, it's a trick it's a, it's an illusion it's and it's a wonderfully successful illusion it makes lots of people lots of money but of course it spoils a great deal along the way um, so I think um, I think we need we do need a lot of help on all this front because I think our natural position is just to fill our lives with, with rot. Uh, because it's just everywhere. It's everywhere you go. It's all over the place. Billboards. That's an interesting point. Like specificity mm -hmm. usually makes something harder to attain. To. Right. Sure. Whether it's whether it's a peculiar yeah. food or a peculiar music or a peculiar personality. Yeah. It's harder um, for it it's has a higher uh, yeah. learning curve. Well, not to not to belabor the point, but. Um, in fact, this is something that we uh, touched on last time I was here, which is it's so much easier to mean whatever meaning you impart to the object. Here's a vague object, a crystal goblet, in which you can pour in whatever meaning you want. 
That's much easier than having a glass of wine which presents to you its meaning and forces its meaning on you. That's uncomfortable. That's hard, right? And so I think we're all much more comfortable with just um, uh, imagine, you know, imagining in meaning in objects. And that's why vague things are very appealing um, or insipid things are very appealing. So. All right, yeah, yeah. We're better time. Yeah. Can I be so bold? I'm putting on the spot so you can say no. Would you send us out of something beautiful? Oh. Do you play by it? Just or do you have no, but oh man, what could I play that would be worth playing? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I no, I don't know. I'm I'm I I've never actually had a piano lesson, so